Good morning to each of you. Would you stand with me this morning and let's <clears throat> read our text that we've been working through. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18, or 11 through 18. Second Peter 3, 11 through 18, and then we will ask the Lord to bless this study. Join me in unison as we read <clears throat> this text. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Our Father, we come again to Your Word this morning in this text. We are grateful for Your Word. We are grateful for the Holy Spirit whom You have sent. Through the work of the Son, You have purified our hearts. You have rent the veil, and therefore, You live in us. You live in us by Your Spirit. And so we ask you to teach us in this text this morning and give us insight and the ability to apply your word to our hearts. Spirit of God, teach us how to apply this text to our own hearts, to the desires of our hearts, and to our daily living. May the glory of Christ as the coming King be put before our eyes. May your desires for us, Father, to set our hope on His return be formed within us. We pray that You would cause us to hear Your Word today as it is in truth the Word of God and that it would be at work in us. We pray this in the name of Jesus and for His glory. Amen. Please be seated. Thank you. Well, as we've begun to look at this particular text, um, the main point is very clear right at the outset of verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? There's Peter's intention for us in this text. And he begins to then explain, working through the rest of the text, what sort of people we ought to be. Particularly in light of what? The second coming of Christ. The day when the King of Kings and Lord of Lords returns and as he has explained in the first half of chapter 3, causes the heavens and earth as we know them to be dissolved and commands the new creation, new heavens and the new earth. That is his promise to us. He tells us that in this text. The promise waiting for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. So what sort of people ought we to be? Where is your hope placed today for salvation from the punishment of sin? From even the presence of sin in your life? Isn't your hope placed in the person and work of Jesus Christ? Now what comes to your mind most readily when we think about the gospel and the person and work of Jesus Christ is what has already taken place historically, right? We think of his righteous life, Christ came to earth, lived a perfect life, and that righteousness, that perfect law-keeping is credited to 
the, the account of everyone who believes in Him, who rests in Him for that salvation. We think of the cross of Christ, where our sin, our guilt, was credited to Christ, and God the Father punished Him in our place. We think of the resurrection that proved Christ's identity as the Son and certainly affirmed His sufficient, perfect, effectual sacrifice on the cross. We think even of His ascension. Our hope is in Christ's being seated at the right hand of God as King of kings and Lord of lords, interceding for us, representing us before the Father. And you know what? There's another aspect of the Gospel that maybe we need to think more often about and set our hope in, and that is His return. Christ's life, Christ's death, Christ's resurrection, His ascension, and His return. Do we have our hope for final and complete experiential salvation set upon His return? This is Peter's exhortation to us. Even from the very first chapter of 1 Peter, one of my most favorite verses in the Scripture is 1 Peter 1.13. He says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action, the, the King James says, remember, gird up the loins of your mind. What a great phrase, right? Picturing the, the soldier who would take up his robes and tuck them in his belt, making his skirts become a pair of pants in a way so that he can run and accomplish the duty to which he is called. Gird up the loins of your mind. Get ready to run through this present evil age. Be sober-minded. And then he says this, set your hope fully on the grace that is to be coming, be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What's coming for you at the revelation of Jesus Christ? Grace. Wow, think about that. And who and how is it coming to you? Christ Himself is bringing it. Set your hope there. That's the last piece of Christ's saving work that has yet to be accomplished. The second coming. The first, all the first pieces, all of the first aspects of His work have been perfectly fulfilled. Will not the final piece be coming? Of course it will. Christ will come and He will bring you more grace. Grace was given to you through His life, through His death, through His resurrection, even now in His ascension, grace to save you from your sin. And He is coming and more grace is coming for you. And you will be completed and perfected. This is what Peter is calling us to in this letter. So since all of these things are to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? Well, he begins by telling us, as we have looked at in the last couple of weeks, waiting people. Waiting, and we wait with lives of holiness and godliness. He also tells us that we're to be hastening people. It's part of waiting. Waiting for and hastening. What are we doing? We're hastening for the return of Christ, meaning we're to be anticipating it greatly and Preparing for it by preaching the gospel in prayer. We've talked about these things. Secondly, he tells us we're to be diligent people. He says this in verse 14, Be diligent as we're waiting for and hastening the day of God in which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Waiting for this new heavens and a new earth, he says, while you were waiting, be diligent. Be diligent to be found by Him without blemish, without spot or blemish, and at peace. We've talked about this. To be diligent now, before the return of Christ, to have an assurance that we are dressed in the righteousness of Christ. And that when we stand before Christ someday, we will be in His righteousness and not our own sinfulness. And at peace. At peace with God and at peace with one another. We've also looked at that not only are we to be diligent people, waiting people, but then counting people. Last week we talked about this. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Counting people. Considering this strategic period of time between the first advent of Christ and the second advent of Christ. The apostles call this the last days. We count this time as patience. Patience from our Lord for salvation. And not to be wasting this time 
with satisfying ourselves in the things of the world that are fleeting and will pass away when Christ returns, but to be proclaiming the gospel and praying and living toward the return of Christ. Well, let's look at the fourth and fifth descriptive terms that Paul or that Peter tells us about this morning. Verse 16 and 17. I'll begin with verse 15 here. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them, in the letters, in Paul's letters, that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other Scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, here it is, take care. Number four, be a careful people. Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. This is one of those exhortations to avoid apostasy. It's very difficult to explain because whenever, whenever you teach or, or study one of these warnings to avoid apostasy, you're, you're walking right on the edge of falling over into teaching that you can lose your salvation, which you cannot. It's this warning that says, prove yourself to be genuine. Prove yourself to be in Christ. Don't let your life give evidence or show that you're a pretender, that, you've, that you would fall away from Christ. The apostles give warnings like these. They never teach that you can lose your salvation for all who are in Christ can never be separated from the love of Christ. But can someone who professes faith in Christ, who professes with their mouth, in some point in their life show themselves to be disingenuous and an unbeliever? The Bible tells us about that. What about Judas, for example? The other apostles didn't, they didn't suspect Judas would be the one. Indeed, they trusted him. They put the bag of money for the apostles and, or the disciples in his hand. And they were all asking what at the Last Supper? Who is it? Is it I? And so certainly, there may be someone who can profess faith in Christ, but then falls away from the Gospel. This is what Peter's telling us about here. Be careful. Take care. Let's catch some of the thoughts as we head toward this particular exhortation to take care. Some of the things that Paul wrote, Peter says, are hard to understand. He's been talking, Peter's been talking about the teachings of Paul that also have to do with the second coming of Christ. Paul, just like Peter, exhorted us, walk as children of light. Anticipate the coming of Christ and live accordingly. But then Peter begins to describe that some of Paul's teachings are hard to understand. Difficult for the mind to grasp. And therefore, some texts in the Scripture that are more difficult for the mind to grasp may present an opportunity for misinterpretation. Is that fair to say? Some texts being more difficult may present to us an opportunity for misinterpretation. Peter does not mean to say that Paul's writings are hard because the words are confusing, meaning they're unclear or impossible to understand. He's not saying that. But rather, the reader, it's our problem. It's, it's the condition of the reader. Why is it that sometimes we struggle to understand certain things in the Scripture? Because we're fallen creatures. Our minds are worldly. We don't think God's thoughts after Him. The problem is not in the writing, but in the reader. And certainly the context that follows bears this out, as does Paul's writings in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Remember the, the section at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that says, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. That, that statement comes right in the tail of Paul's teaching about his, the inspiration of the Scripture. That the Holy Spirit gave wisdom to the apostles so that what they wrote 
was spiritual truths interpreted into spiritual words. And the Scriptures were given to us. But then he concludes that section by saying, the natural person, the unbeliever, the person who doesn't have the mind of Christ, doesn't have the Spirit of God indwelling them, cannot discern the things of the Spirit of God. Indeed, they are what? Foolishness to them. But then, Paul turns his focus to the believer, and he says, but for us, we have what? We have the mind of Christ. We have the Holy Spirit given to us. And Jesus said to his disciples in the upper room, I'm sending the Spirit to you so that he can what? He can lead you into all the truth. That's why we have him. And so as a believer, filled with the Spirit of God, we are able to understand the things freely given to us by God, just like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 14-16. But there are many natural men who are trying to understand the Scriptures. And when they come to Paul's writings, they may be twisted them. Consequently, just like Peter says, some people were twisting, twisting Paul's writings as they do what? The other Scriptures. So Paul's writings are Scriptures, and the rest of the Scriptures, people do twist them. For example, let me give you an example, maybe one of the most well-known examples of Paul's writings being twisted. All throughout history, church history, Paul's writings have been used to promote things like antinomianism. He comes to the end of Romans 5 and he says, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Salvation isn't by works, it's by faith alone. And so immediately Paul then answers, be in the mind of the reader sometimes and say, well, if grace abounds to me, I can live however I want. The more I sin, the more grace abounds to me. Salvation isn't by works. I don't have to do anything to be saved, of course. So I can just live according to my own desires. And then Paul immediately answers that argument in Romans 6, right? If you have been risen with Christ, how will we who are thou dead to sin, what? Live any longer in it. Don't you know that as many of us have been baptized into Jesus Christ, have been baptized into His death? Reckon yourselves therefore to be dead indeed unto sin and alive to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. So he answers the argument well, but Paul's Gospel taken and heard by someone who doesn't have the Spirit of God living within them can be twisted to say, I can live however I want to in this body, and it doesn't matter because my spirit is justified before God. And so Peter affirms that there are those who twist the Scriptures, change the Gospel, twisting Paul's writings, twisting other Scriptures. So how does Peter describe those who are twisting Scripture, including Paul's writings? How does he describe them? First, the word is ignorant. Ignorant. What does that mean? Untaught. Untrained. Unlearned. This describes someone who isn't trained by much reading and studying of Scripture, for one. Isn't it important to understand each verse in light of the context of Scripture? And so the best commentary, the best teacher on Scripture, apart from the Holy Spirit, is other Scripture. This is describing someone who isn't trained to seek the author's intention for each and every text of Scripture. They come to the text and maybe say, well, what do I think this means to myself? This is someone who isn't trained by the illumination and guidance of the Holy Spirit as the divine teacher of Scripture. This is someone who isn't trained by recurrence to the apostles' doctrine, though regularly may they uh, through regularly gathering with the body of Christ for preaching and teaching. So their twisting of the Scripture is not attributed to a problem with the words of the Scripture, but a problem with how they read the Scripture. They are ignorant. Untaught by the Spirit. Untaught by the Word. Untaught by regular occurrence to the teaching in the body of Christ. Peter also describes those who twist, twist Scripture as being unstable. Unstable. 
In other words, not established in their walk with the Lord. Not yet consistent and balanced in their practices or doctrines. Not steadfast in sound doctrine. Not consistent in in the disciplines of grace. The reading of the Word and prayer and and the meeting with the body of Christ. This is someone who is blown around by every new and exciting doctrinal attraction. Have you ever known anyone like that? There's new doctrines. Old doctrine. Old error dressed up in new clothes, right? And it's so attractive to so many people. Something new. Something exciting. It, it's, this is someone who is really excited about a doctrine one day, and then they leave it in the dust as unimportant the next day. They wholeheartedly believe a teaching one day and abandon it the next. They interpret the Scriptures often based on their feelings and experiences. Sometimes in seminary we called that narcissus instead of exegesis. You interpret your own feelings, your own self into the text, and you make it mean what would fit your experience. Dear ones, listen. How many people bend the Scripture and interpret it according to what they have experienced? They let the experience, their own personal spiritual experiences, be the rule of interpreting the Scripture. That is so dangerous to do. Our our experiences and our feelings should always be subject to the authority of God's Word, even if it frightens us to do so. This is someone who may obey the Scripture if their circumstances allow them to. This is someone who is not steadfast in the Word, steadfast in sound doctrine, or steadfast in godly living that results. So why do they twist Paul's doctrine and the other Scriptures? Because they're untrained in the Word of truth. And they're unstable in the truth. What's the result of that? They twist the Scripture to their own destruction. This is a sobering outcome, isn't it? They twist the Scripture. Is it that important to get the Scriptures right? It is. The Spirit of God has been given to us to do this. For those who come to the Scriptures without the Holy Spirit or without yielding to the Holy Spirit's teaching, can twist the Scriptures. And Peter says it's to their own destruction or their ruination. This, this speaks of utter destruction. It truly speaks. This word destruction speaks of perishing in the eternal misery of hell. To twist the Scriptures is truly life-threatening in an eternal sense. To remain ignorant of sound doctrine and attracted and, and flitting to every wind of doctrine is to be, can we say it, spiritually suicidal. It's twisted to their own destruction. Men and women who want to fulfill their own sensual sinful desires and gag their consciences will ignore biblical accountability and end up twisting Scriptures. This is what Peter's warning us while we're waiting for the second coming. It is a great temptation between now and the Lord's return. There's a great pressure between now and the Lord's return to twist the Scriptures and to throw off carefulness with doctrine. Sound doctrine. Not only, and this is something to be very careful of, not only will incorrect doctrine lead to sinful living, we know that's true, right? What you believe results in how you behave. But sinful living also leads to incorrect or twisted doctrine. And that we see a propensity for today too, because if you want to live a certain way, a way that pleases our own sensual desires, you'll certainly do what you need to do with the Scriptures in order to accommodate how you want to live your life. That's the temptation that Peter's talking about here. They will twist the Scriptures to their own destruction. What's the solution for this? 
Well, the ultimate solution for Scripture twisting is a work of regeneration in the heart by the Holy Spirit. That's the solution. Uh, that removes this regeneration in the heart by the Holy Spirit that removes the stony heart of unbelief and instead instills a living, believing heart of, as as the the prophets spoke, Ezekiel, a heart of flesh, a living heart, a heart alive to God, a heart filled with the Holy Spirit, a heart of flesh that is passionate about and committed to holiness and the truth. You see, that is going to be a growing quality about every true believer, one in whom the Holy Spirit lives. What does Jesus call the Holy Spirit in the upper room? Isn't He called the Spirit of truth? He's called the Spirit of truth. If you are inhabited by the Spirit of truth, therefore you are a believer, then you will have a desire to know the truth. To pursue it as a lifelong pursuit. I want to know what's true. Spirit of God, teach me through Your Word. And a secondary solution is is not to prevent common men and women from handling the Scriptures for themselves, as some churches in the past have done. You don't prevent people, say, oh wait, you you can't handle the Scriptures. You're not qualified. No, that's not the solution. But instead to teach one another how to rightly divide the Word of Truth, just as Paul did Timothy. 2 Timothy 2.15, rightly handle the Word of Truth and to insist upon it, and hold one another accountable to it. Brothers and sisters, men and women will twist biblical doctrine. Everything from the virgin birth to the second coming, as we've read about here in this text. To do so is eternally deadly. And therefore, Peter exhorts us, while we're waiting for the second coming, take care that you are not carried away. Take care that you are not carried away. Peter's speaking so lovingly here. You therefore, beloved, like a parent with a child who is being prepared to head off to college. Do you know that feeling? (laughs) We're learning about that. You've trained someone. You've cared for someone. You've fed someone. You've nurtured someone. And now they head off into a arena of life where they could potentially be torn to pieces, right? Maybe Peter feels like that with his church. Christ is coming. There's a lot of Scripture twisting going on out there. People are changing the Scriptures because they want to live a certain way. They want to accommodate their own sinful lifestyle. They want to quiet their conscience. Beloved, take care that you are not carried away by this. Peter's saying to us. Know this beforehand. Peter has given his readers the knowledge that they need to survive the dangers and endure faithfully until the coming of Christ. I've given you what you need before. And how often does Peter say through his epistles, remember this. Remember how I told you this. Remember how I told you this. Don't forget this. Take care that you're not carried away by this error. It wants to take you and carry you away. Peter's already told us about the power and the reliability of God's Word in this second letter. That's how he opens. The Word of God has all you need for life and godliness. He's told us about the danger and deception of false teachers. Chapter 2. He's told us about the certainty and the glory of Christ's second coming. And he's talked about the destruction that follows ignoring and twisting the Word of God. And knowing all of this, Peter says, take care. In other words, keep on guarding yourselves. That's what that verb means. Keep on guarding yourself. Don't let up. This is an active, present, active, ongoing thing. Keep on guarding yourself. Do you live your life from now to the coming of Christ actively guarded against what is called truth? to see whether or not it's actually scriptural truth or not. Do you, are, you, are you discerning? Is that a desire of yours to remain discerning what you read, what you hear, what you believe, what you speak to others? To be discerning. Take care. Keep on guarding yourselves. Keep on being watchful for the dangers around you and within you. Paul told Timothy this too. He said, keep a close watch on yourself 
and on your teaching, on your life, and on your doctrine. And persist in this, he said. For in doing so, you will both save yourself and your hearers. Watch over your handling of God's Word, dear ones. Your own interpretation of it. Watch over that. Watch over your own beliefs. What you call truth in your heart. Watch over your doubts. Things that you doubt that God's Word says are true. Don't ignore those. Deal with them. Pull in others to help you deal with them if that's what you need. What you doubt, what you believe matters. Watch over your responses to God's Word. How do you respond to God's Word in your heart? Is it with acceptance and submission? Or do you find yourself twisting, accommodating so that you can gratify your own sensual desires? How do you respond to God's Word? Is there a coldness and a resistance to it? Or is it warmth and openness and submission? Watch over your heart. Just like Jesus and certainly Proverbs. Watch your heart with all vigilance. This is the time to abide in the truth. The Apostle John says, what you have learned from the beginning abides in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and the Father. And this is the promise that He has made to us. Eternal life. That's His promise. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. Do you realize that there, are, that there is a force of evil in heavenly places that is trying to deceive you? You and me. Do we realize that? I think we forget about some of these things. But the anointing that you have received from Him, that's the Spirit of God. Jesus sent the Spirit to, to be in us. The anointing that you have received from Him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. You have the Spirit of God. He will help you to discern between truth and error. Depend upon Him. Depend upon His, His Word. But as His anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, just as it has taught you, abide in Him. This is the time to abide in the truth. Peter does not want us to presume that it's impossible for us to be carried away. That's why he says it. Take care that you are not carried away. Don't ever think it's impossible for me to be carried away by any false teaching or sensual living. That's impossible for me. Don't ever think that. Don't ever put your guard down. That means to be led astray. To be carried away means to be led astray from the right path by growing comfortable with the false teaching and false teachers. By growing accustomed to the ways of those who twist the Scriptures to accommodate sin. And I hope we realize this, that doctrinal change and worldly living doesn't happen all at once. It happens always incrementally. Little by little. Oh, we have to be aware. That's why it's so important for us to be in the Word, abiding in the truth, just like John says, just like Peter is exhorting us. And to notice here, and this is part of the point that I've was was pressing on earlier. Notice what is luring these to be carried away. Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people. So what is driving their error? Lawlessness. It's That is what you will find in this era between now and the coming of Christ. You will find people who just simply want to keep living in sinful, sensuous ways and they will twist the Scripture to accommodate that and and quiet their conscience. We have to be watchful for that. We have to be watchful for that. It's error. It's wandering. It's roaming. It's being led astray because of lawlessness, rebellion, unprincipled living, defiant against the law. In fact, this is, this is the same term, lawless, that, that Peter used for the men of Sodom in 2 Peter 2.7. Lawlessness. Now, don't think, again, don't think 
that this cannot happen to you. That you cannot be led away or carried away. Do you know that Peter himself was momentarily carried away by error? You remember that? That ought to be a real sobering illustration for us. Peter? Yes, Peter. Galatians 2, 11-14, even Peter himself was momentarily shaken from the truth of the Gospel. But Christ quickly restored him through the rebuke of Paul. Now that's, that's, a, that's a two-edged sword right there. One, it teaches us that it is possible for someone like us to be certainly moved from the truth, but also Christ quickly restored Peter. So though you as a true believer may be shaken for a moment, however long that moment may be, to believe something that is an error, if you are truly Christ's, He will bring you back. He won't let you remain in that error. Just as He, as he brought Peter back through the exhortation of Paul. Peter knows firsthand the danger of which he is warning us. Peter is calling us to maintain a perpetual spiritual vigilance We may do this only by the strength of Christ's ever-present Spirit within us and His faithful leading us, faithfully leading us in the truth and by His reminding us that Christ is coming soon. So take care that you're not led away. And then secondly, Peter says here, take care that you are not going to lose your own stability. Again, a sobering aspect of this warning to take care. Take care that you're not carried away. Take care that you not lose your own stability. To lose stability here means to fall from a spiritual position of firmness and steadfastness in the truth and from the life of holiness and godliness that the truth creates in the life of the believer. It's certainly a warning to believers. Again, if this happened to Peter for a moment, this could certainly happen to a believer at least for a short time. And think about it, such a loss, such a movement from stability, even for a short period of time for a believer, though not eternally damning, would be a temporary disastrous thing. Peter's moment of instability led him, for example, the first, the first time in the Gospels, that Peter's moment of instability at the cross, right at Christ's cross, led him to deny Christ which then grieved Peter deeply, didn't it? And Peter's moment of instability with the Jerusalem council in Galatians 2, remember, influenced other Jews to act hypocritically and led Barnabas astray for a time as well. So there is an impact on others, even if a believer temporarily is shaken from the stability of the truth. But again, I'm so grateful to see in the Scriptures every time Christ restored Peter. This is a warning to believers, but I think also it should be taken as a warning to pretenders. To pretenders. Could this also be a warning to those who are enjoying the blessings of being associated with the body of Christ, but have not themselves wholeheartedly embraced the truth of the Gospel? and submitted themselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Have you received Christ as Savior here? Maybe you've been here for years. Do you know the truth of Christ? And have you embraced it as your whole and complete saving hope? And knowing that Christ is that Savior to you, have you surrendered your heart to follow Him as Lord? Or are you still your own Lord in your heart? When it comes down to God's Word or your Word, which way do you go? Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4-8 through warns us of this. Someone who can enjoy life in the body of Christ and yet not themselves be a part of that body and spirit. Peter says, take care. Be watchful. If you have Christ, you have all. If you don't have Christ, you have nothing. He will keep you if you are His. If you are not His, turn to Him. 
come to Him and seek the rest that He would give you through His salvation and everlasting life. In light of these sobering warnings, therefore let us be warned and be a careful people. And remember, our strength to remain stable does not lie in ourselves, in our minds, in our abilities. Our strength to remain stable is found in the constant presence of the love of Christ for us and His Spirit's continually leading us into an absolute commitment to the truth of His Word. So, as we wait for the coming of Christ, we're called to be waiting, diligent, counting, careful, and then finally, number five, growing. What grow? Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Peter's giving us now the positive balance to many sobering exhortations here. And that's so wonderful because, indeed, one of the greatest protections against falling from our own stability or being carried away with lawless people is to be growing in Christ. Continuing spiritual growth in Christ is a powerful safeguard against being carried away and losing your own stability. Peter says this in chapter 1 as well. He, he speaks from verse 3 to verse 10, verse 11, about a progress of growing in Christ. You have the Word. You have God's promises, His exceeding great and precious promises given to you so that you can have all that you need to escape the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And for that reason, add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge. And he continues along that progression and he comes to verse, verse 8 and he says in chapter 1, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, so they're present and growing, there's life there, not perfection, not even necessarily maturity. But they're there and they're growing. They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to just make a little comment, illustrative comment on that. Sometimes you think, well, I'm not growing unless I'm mature. Think about the difference between a baby and a full-grown adult. A little baby has all the same parts that a full-grown adult does. They're just all small. But they're there and they're growing. And I love how Peter encourages us with that. He says, if these qualities are yours and increasing, is there some love that Christ has placed in your heart and some wisdom and some godliness? And They're there. They're feeble. They're weak. They're small, but they're growing. Be encouraged in that. In verse 9, he says, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. If, if these qualities of spiritual progress are, you're not seeing them growing in your life, what does Peter say? Then it's hard for you, if not impossible, to gain assurance of salvation. It's, if you lack these qualities, you become nearsighted and blind. You forget that you were cleansed from your former sins. There's not an assurance that you're truly forgiven. You don't see the fruit of it in your life, and so you're shaken from assurance. And that's why he says in verse 10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Make sure by the Word of God and the truths of the Gospel that you are called and chosen by God for salvation. If you practice these qualities, you'll never fall. And that way there will be a richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 10 in particular. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. If you practice these qualities, you will never fail. This kind of growth that Peter has described through his letter helps you to be assured of your salvation. It's a safeguard against falling away, losing your stability, and being carried away by the error of lawless people. It's also an appeal to the Christian will. Grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. The new will, the new heart in Christ, 
is being called to action. Of certainly, like all growth, it, this, this call, this growth, doesn't rise from the exertion of the will. It, it springs from the source of life, Jesus Christ Himself. While passively abiding in Christ, however, as the source of our spiritual life, we're also commanded to actively abide in Christ. I think Peter is looking at both angles here. You grow, but know that it all comes from the grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. John talks about this, John 15. He says, abide in me. Without me, you can do nothing. But then he comes to verse 7 and he says, let my words abide in you. And ask what you will. It will be done for you. Let the word abide in you and remain in prayer. And from that person who's actively abiding in the provision of Christ's grace, from them will, will come fruit. The fruit of life to bring glory to God the Father. Or Philippians 2, 12 and 13. God is working in you. And so we're called because of that to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Or Colossians 2, 6. Walk rooted, built up, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding with thanksgiving. So the first thing that Peter calls us to grow in is grace. Grow in grace. What is grace? We've got definitions for grace, don't we, that we've memorized? God's riches at Christ's expense. What is all that? Free, unmerited favor of God. His gifts bestowed upon guilty man in and through Jesus Christ. Every spiritual blessing and gift from heavenly places in Christ completely undeserved. His pardon, His peace, His very presence within us, the power that He would provide for us to do His will, provisions of all kind, protection, His promises. These are all His grace toward us and many more things. What is His grace? When you think of grace, what comes to your mind? From God's Word. It's yours. Grow in grace. What is the instrument of receiving that grace? And appropriating that grace and enjoying it? Faith, right? You believe that God has given you this and you enjoy it and experience it and depend upon it. So how do we grow in grace then? Kind of an interesting command, isn't it? Grow in grace. I thought those were God's gifts to me. How do I grow in them? I think that we grow in grace as believers as we apprehend that grace with ever-increasing faith, spiritual understanding, and daily experience. First, you must believe that you stand in that grace. Do you believe that you are ever cut off from God's grace at some point in your Christian walk? Because the Bible says you're not. Romans 5.2 The moment you're justified by faith in Jesus Christ, you are standing in grace. The problem isn't that you don't have it. The problem is that we often don't believe that we have it and then apprehend it and depend upon it for use in our lives. So I think we grow in grace by believing truly believing and trusting that it is ours. And then also by understanding its manifold facets. Do we know all of the grace that God has made to be ours? Its endless resource, its inexhaustible might. Understand it. Keep learning about it. Learn to ask for it and apply it in every moment of need. Think about that as part of growing in grace. Do you sometimes become mindful of dependence upon grace in certain aspects of your life, but many other aspects of your life, you're just kind of walking along as if in your own strength? Part of growing in grace is learning to understand that every aspect of our lives and all that we do were to depend on the grace of God, His wisdom, His strength, His holiness, His love given to us through the Holy Spirit. Learn to ask for it. Men, when you go to work each morning, do you depend upon God's grace? Ladies, as you parent your children, are you depending upon God's grace mindfully? Why do we forget that we have such treasures from heaven given to us by Christ through the Holy Spirit? Rest in the grace through every trial of suffering. It is yours. Experience its power. Depend upon it in every moment of temptation. 
Grow in this grace. Grow in your experience of this grace. Submit to it, to its intention to make you Christ-like. Rejoice in its power to accomplish all of God's purposes in your life, in Christ, in spite of you, though you do not deserve it. I think these are ways we grow in grace. We believe, we understand, we learn to ask for it. Rest in it with everything. Depend on it. Submit to it. Rejoice in it. Until we come to the place in our Christian lives when we realize that there is no aspect of our lives where we're not dependent upon God's grace. And experience it. Strengthened by it. Equipped with it. There's no better place to learn that in deep trials and suffering because then you feel your dependence upon Christ. When we feel stronger and we, we, we come out of those seasons, we forget how dependent upon Christ's grace that we really are. How many times in your life have you really been brought low and you know the task before you in a specific day and you're like, Christ, I don't have it. I, don't, I can't think well enough to get this done. But then you walk ahead into that moment and you find experientially that God is faithful to His promises and He gives you all that you need to endure it and it turns out better than you could ever imagine. And then we forget that once we feel stronger, don't we? We need to learn to grow in His grace, understanding it, believing it, resting upon it, being mindful of it. Grow in the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And then He also says, let her be, grow in knowledge. Yes, grow in knowledge. Grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To grow in the knowledge of Christ is certainly to grow in your apprehension of biblical truth concerning who Christ is and what He has done. But it's not only that. It's also to grow in a spiritual communion with Him and to increase, increasingly experience Him as your Lord, your Master, your Savior, your Deliverer, your Rescuer. As you know more and more about who He is and what He is like and what He has done and what He is doing now and, and what He promises to do for all who trust in Him, you will then increasingly speak to Him and commune with Him about your sin, for example. About everything. When you learn of Christ and His power to save and His and His ability to wash you in His own blood and, and advocate for you in His righteousness, doesn't that draw you then to talk to Him about your sin? And to lay it all before Him and say, I am so tired of this. Take this from me. Wash me clean. Make me more like you. See, the knowing of who Christ is and what He does draws us to commune with Him, and then we know Him and His saving power and work in our lives. It draws you to rejoice in His saving work and seek to know His leading in all areas of your life. He's our Lord, isn't He? Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, you are my Lord. You lead me. You guide me. You reveal your will to me. You command my life. You order my circumstances. I want to do your will. Teach me your will. Lead me in your truth. Teach me. See, that's to know about Him and then to begin to know Him. To find Him trustworthy through all your trials. He's the Good Shepherd, is He not? Well, have you experienced His as Good Shepherding through the, the walk of your life? To know His presence and strength and love given to you? To hear His voice in the Word? To guide and comfort you? Yes, we know about Him. That's important. But then as we know about Him, that draws us to know Him in all of the areas of our life to be for us a Savior and our Lord. Is that your pursuit? Think of the difference of knowing about Him and then knowing who He is actively at work in your life. That's the pursuit. I don't want just knowledge. I don't, want just, I don't just want a confession. I don't want just a, a creed. I don't just want a theology book. I want a Savior. I want a Lord. Right? And that's, that's the connection between knowing him and knowing about him and knowing him. Growing in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ increases fellowship with him, love for Christ, worship of him, 
devotion to Him. Jesus Christ is the source and the goal and the subject and the object and the fountain and the ocean of all grace and knowledge. It's Christ Himself. And He's coming. And you will see Him face to face. And when He comes, He has grace for you. He's bringing it with Him. And as you wait for the second coming of Christ, Peter exhorts us, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And that will turn, in turn will cause you to long for His coming even more. Letter C, so we grow in grace. Letter A, we grow in knowledge. Letter B, and then letter C, we grow for the glory of Christ. That's how he closes this letter and completes this particular paragraph. To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Seek to grow in the grace and knowledge of seek to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ so that your life increasingly reflects his likeness and consequently honors him in this life and in eternity. Your likeness to him, growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ, your likeness to him brings him glory. Isn't that what Romans 8? It's a very simple truth. Romans 8. 28 and 29 says that, that all things work together for the good of those who love Him, and that good is their conformity to the image of the Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brothers. So all that God orchestrates in your life is to make you like Jesus, because being like Jesus brings Him glory. That's a simple truth, but it's a glorious one. There is no greater way that we can bring glory to Christ than to become like Him by growing in His grace and knowledge. As we bring this to a close this morning, the main idea, of course, what sort of people ought we to be? Waiting, diligent, counting, careful, and growing. That's how we wait for the return of Christ, the second coming of Christ. If we do not live mindfully of the second coming of Christ, why don't we? Why don't you if you don't? Is it because of unbelief? Maybe you don't believe there's a second coming. Peter has dismantled the skeptic's doubts and established the truth of the second coming in verses 1-7 through already. We went through that. Go back through the text if you don't believe it. He's coming. Christ is coming. Maybe it's sin. Peter made Peter's made the rebels' deliberate overlooking of the second coming look utterly foolish and dangerous. There's people who want to overlook the second coming of Christ because they love their son. And he, he makes it look so foolish in this chapter. They deliberately overlook this fact. He says in verse 5, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which they, the earth, and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Oh, why would we continue in sin in order, why would we continue in sin and therefore ignore the second coming? Maybe fear. Maybe fear is a reason we don't think about it. We want to shut it out because we feel afraid of that. Peter comforts the fearful here by putting on display the mastery of God over time and the mercy of God in salvation. There's time. God delights in salvation. He's made every provision for it. He overcomes our fear by showing us the mercy of God. Maybe it's distraction. Distraction with other things that are less important. Things that will be dissolved and melt when the Lord comes. Peter focuses the distracted one by exhorting him to be watchful as he would a thief. Maybe it's our affections. Peter stirs the one who loves the things of the world and is living for the things of the world to consider the transience of this present heaven and earth. Why are you distracted? Why am I distracted from thinking on the second coming? May we pray that the Lord would give us hearts that are fixed on that grace coming this year. 
Do you know what I think? I think I think something will cause us to be mindful of his second coming more than anything else. I think both Paul and Peter give us the same answer. What will be helpful to us? To be more mindful of the second coming than anything else. Listen to what Paul says. See if you can catch it. I am already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. What do you think it is? I think it's love for Jesus. You love Christ. You will love his appearing and long for it. Doesn't that make sense? Think of the apostles as they let their Savior go in the ascension. And they couldn't wait for his return. Their minds were filled with it. They loved him. They loved him. And so Peter says, I love his, or Paul says, I love his appearing. You love Christ, you will love his appearing and long for it. If you long for Christ's appearing, you'll live toward it. Or Peter says the same thing. 1 Peter 1 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father, Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That's the second coming. A salvation, the completed salvation ready to be revealed. The inheritance that's coming. In this, you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, what? You love Him. And though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. If you love Christ, you will rejoice with joy inexpressible in anticipation of His glorious revealing. You see? Love for Christ. If you rejoice at His glorious revelation, then you will endure all the suffering and trials and grief and testing that He ordains for you until you see Him face to face and obtain your inheritance. So we pray, God, help us to love Christ, to know Him, in His glory, and to wait for that final gospel work where He will return, bringing grace and completely save us from even the experience of our sin. What sort of people ought we to be? Waiting, diligent, counting, careful, and growing because we're mindful of His second coming. Right before we pray, let me say one more word to you this morning if you are an unbeliever. You don't yet know Christ as your Savior and Lord. You've never confessed your sin and trusted in Christ to make you a child of God. What is your response to the second coming? Let me read to you a word from the Apostle Paul. Acts 17, 30 and 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Christ will return. And if you are not hidden in Christ by trusting in Him, His saving work of life and death and resurrection, then when He returns, He will be your judge. I don't want that for you. You don't want that. Not if you really understand the weight of that. So... Trust in Christ as Savior and Lord now. And please know, dear friend, if you have not come to that salvation yet, don't let sin hold you back in either your love for sin or your guilt over your sin. If love for sin holds you back, please know that when Christ returns, all that you love in this life will be swept away, will be removed in a moment, and all you will have is to stand before Christ and be seen as you are and judged as you deserve and as we all deserve. 
but those who are in Christ are forgiven and clothed in the righteousness of Christ by faith. And so please know on the other hand that no matter how heinous you think your sin is, there is no sin so great that the cross is not more powerful still to cleanse it away so that even you and even me, when we stand before the Lord someday at His return, we will be perfectly righteous as Christ is righteous. Not one stain left over. So turn to Christ, Him whom God has appointed to judge and given assurances of it that He has raised Him from the dead. Let's stand together and pray. Our Father, we anticipate as we think of these texts, Your return, Your soon return. The Son's return, Christ's return. And we want to be mindful of it. We want to be living toward it in our hearts, in our daily routines. We want it to be part of what we anticipate daily and something that actively causes us to be guided into Your will. But Father, we won't, we won't long for Your return as we are. We won't long for the Son's return as we ought until we love Christ as we ought. And of course, we will never love Him as we truly ought to until He returns and, and perfects us. But may we grow in that love. May our love for Christ grow as we grow in His grace toward us, as we grow in the knowledge of Him as our Savior and Lord. I'm so thankful for the way Peter concluded this text. If we grow in Christ's grace, we grow in His knowledge. We will bring Him glory and we will love Him more dearly. That's our prayer. Each one of these brothers and sisters of Christ of mine, of mine are, are joining me in this prayer, Lord, that we would, we would love You more, Lord Jesus, and so have a heart like Paul and Peter who loved your appearing and lived, lived so different than the rest of the world because of your coming and all the grace coming with you. We thank you, Father. We thank you, Son. Holy Spirit, we thank you. Thank you for being in us, abiding in us. Protect us. Give us discernment to walk in truth as we've been talking about. Hold us back from losing stability in the truth. Hold us back from being carried away by the error of lawlessness. Holy Spirit, may we abide in Your Word and, and in Your illumination. Keep us. Lord Jesus, You prayed for us that we wouldn't be taken out of this world, but that we'd be kept from the evil one, that we be sanctified in the truth. Father, you hear the prayers of Christ and answer them. You've promised. And do that for these, my precious brothers and sisters in Christ. Hear those prayers for us. Hear those prayers for us, we pray. And if there is, there is someone here today that has not yet turned to Christ in saving faith and repentance, Help them to see the futility of loving their sin and help them also to see the mercy that is offered to them at the cross to cleanse every sin that we would stand righteous before you on the day of your return. Stir us with this text again and again we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.